Now you hear me? So I'm just wearing this for fun then. It's my rock star mic. <laughs> All right. So anyways, yeah, so I, I wrote and rewrote this so many times because um, I know that I'm done with a lecture when I feel like the beginning points back to the end and the end points back to the beginning and it's all this like makes sense together and I really struggled getting to that point here. Um, but in the end, I had to just lay everything out before the Lord, like literally laid all my papers out and I just prayed over it. And then all of a sudden, I started to see that I think that James is really talking about our perspective here. And so I entitled this section, A Proper Perspective, because I realized that's what I thought was shining through this passage, is how we need to have a proper perspective. Um, This includes a perspective on our wealth, on our trials, and on waiting on the Lord. This perspective, I think, is ultimately characterized by humility because our wealth is not our own. In fact, our lives are not even our own. As hard as it is to admit, we don't control anything. Um, But simply, we are stewards and called to live in this patience, waiting expectantly for the Lord. And so with that in mind, let's go to God in prayer before we jump in. Lord, lift our eyes to you this morning. With everything going on in our lives, in our church, in our cities, in our world, in our country, Lord, just lift our eyes to you this morning. May we hear what you want to say to us today, Lord. Let me just be your mouthpiece, Lord. Open our minds and our hearts to what you want to speak to us through this passage and help us to see how we can apply it today, Lord. We love you and we praise you. Amen. So there are two main sections in our passage today. James 5, 1 through 6 really centers around our wealth and the danger of wealth. And then the second section, 7 through 12, focuses around patient endurance. And so let's look at 5, 1 through 6 first here today. It says, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will testify against you. And eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived in luxury, lived on earth in luxury and self indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. So first of all, when I read the commentaries on this particular part of our passage, there was kind of a divide as to who James is talking to here. Is this believers he's talking to or non-believers? 
Most commentators I read said that he's talking to non-believers because in the end here, they're not given an opportunity for repentance and they're not called brothers and sisters as he usually does. However, another commentary said this whole letter is written to believers, so it must address them as well. Otherwise, why is it included? In the end, I decided I don't think it really matters, at least for our discussion today. I had to ask the question, could this apply to me? And how should I learn to live in light of this passage? And for those questions, I'm not sure if it fully matters exactly who he's referring to, because regardless of who James is addressing, there is a word of caution here in our passage that I think we should heed. James has emphasized multiple times throughout his book the danger of wealth, and here he shows us some pits that we could fall into. And so I think that we need to listen carefully in order to avoid falling into that danger. So James here addresses three particular sins with regards to wealth. Hoarding, extravagance, and finally injustice. So the sin is not that they have money, it's that they love money. God is not against the wealthy, but he is against misguided priorities. This brings me back to having a proper perspective that I see throughout this passage. Their wealth does not belong to them, although they're acting as if it does. A. Barnes says, There is no sin in merely being rich. Where sin exists among the rich, it arises from the manner in which wealth is acquired, the spirit which it tends to engender the heart, and the way in which it is used. Now, they are not keeping their eyes on God's clock. Chapter 4, the end of it, which we looked at last week, talked about those who think that tomorrow is guaranteed. In fact, they're planning on how they're going to earn their money and save their money because tomorrow is guaranteed. However, here in our passage, we are reminded that it is not. These wealthy here in our passage are storing up goods as if this life is all there is. The fact is, James paints a horribly harsh picture when he says they are fattening their hearts in a day of slaughter. They are not considering God's timeline. And once again, this brings us back to what I think James focuses on wealth throughout his book, and that is that it becomes their security and that what they put their trust in. I think every time we talk about wealth in James, we are called to ask ourselves the question, where do we put our trust and where do we find our security? Now, you might remember at the beginning of James, we looked at three main traits of a child of God. And one of those traits is a caring ministry to the needy. Here, their lifestyle is selfish and unconcerned about others. They're hoarding their wealth, demonstrating false priorities, and I think priorities is a big part of this passage as well. But they are also depriving others, and this is a really good example of that convicting verse in chapter 4, verse 17, 
that said if we don't do the good that we know we ought to do, we're in sin. They're storing up their wealth and selfishly instead of using it to care for others. Now, the end of this passage points to them condemning the righteous one. And I think that should give us pause here. Judas sold the Lord for money. Motier says, We must constantly have it before our minds that it was the love of money that betrayed the Lord Jesus. So this brings me to the question that I always have to ask in these passages And that is, how does this apply to us today? I think it would be easy to take this passage, and if we say that, oh, he's talking to non-believers, therefore we'll just dismiss it. I think it would be easy to just dismiss it and ignore the caution that he's giving us. However, I think we have seen consistently through the book of James that his book was meant to challenge us. It was meant to convict us to cause us to evaluate our lives, even when it's really uncomfortable. And so in this passage, the things that they have wasted are testifying against them. How many of us can admit there are things in our closets and in our homes that get really wasted? I thought this message would be a really good one to repeat right before our rummage sale in June, wouldn't it? (laughs) I think James here is giving us a picture of pits that we could easily fall into that we need to protect ourselves from because there is a real danger in wealth. And all of us here living in America during this blessed time should really hear this advice. I think he's calling us to strike a balance between prudent saving and sinful hoarding. I think that we need to be constantly evaluating whether we are striking this balance. Now, I say this as one who totally doesn't have this figured out. Um, I am fairly newly married, fairly new to even having finances at all, and (laughs) figuring out a budget and all of that has been an ongoing challenge. Um, But this was just a really good reminder for me as well that I think it's a good practice to regularly lay out our wealth before the Lord, evaluate our finances before him, And prayerfully ask if he is calling us to use the money he has entrusted us with to further his kingdom in some way. And I think that requires asking in all humility. How does he want us to use the money that he has given us? Now all of this reminded me of the story that we read in John 12 verses 1 through 8 last year when we studied the book of John. This story really stood out to me, and it was about the woman who anoints Jesus with the expensive perfume. She pours it on her feet and wipes it with her hair. Now the disciples are immediately troubled by this act because that perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor, which honestly makes sense. However, Jesus sees this as a beautiful act of love. I think that she was just completely overcome by her love for the Lord, that she did the only thing she could to show him how much she loved him. And I think that is what our giving should be as well. 
I think that that is how we should use our money. It should come out of an overflow, an overwhelming love for the Lord and all that he has done for us. And in that, we pour out all we have before him. Ask him how he would like to use what he has entrusted us with. So now we're out of the wealth section, and let's move on to the next section. Y'all can relax now. No, I'm just um, next section is 7 through 12. And for this, um, James focuses upon patience here. And this section may seem completely disconnected from the first, but I think it focuses once again on having a proper perspective. And so I'm going to divide this into two sections, verses 7 through 9 and then verse 10 through 12. The first section, I think, focuses around the kind of patience that waits expectantly. And the second focuses on a patience that endures during trials. In both sections, James gives the kind of patience he is encouraging, and then he gives an example of it. And then he tells us the danger of the tongue to spoil it all. So let's look at this first section. Verses 7 through 9. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You, too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. So this kind of patience here is expectant. It's waiting on the Lord coming as he has promised. Now we remember that every generation so far has prayed for a swift coming of the Lord, and every generation so far has learned the lesson of patience. The example he gives here is the example of a farmer. And I think that shows us that this patience is not purely passive. It's active. It doesn't sit idly by, but actively prepares for the coming of the crop. The farmer does the necessary things for the crop in hopeful expectation of the harvest. Here, the farmer is waiting for the crop upon which his livelihood depends. And I think this example here shows us once again what James' picture of the Christian life of faith is, and that is a process of growth. Faith meets life's tests through patience and then grows into maturity and settled character. But James presents a danger here, and that, as I stated, is the danger of the tongue to spoil it all. Because we're not really waiting patiently if we're doing so while grumbling and complaining. Now, when we think of this in light of the coming of the Lord and waiting for that, this grumbling might be because we think it's just taking too long. Which is complaining because we think that we know what would be better than God knows. Or it might be grumbling and complaining Because as we wait, this world is just so fallen. All of this points to the fact that our tongues can disrupt the fellowship and rob us of the harvest. 
And this is where I found what Charles Swindoll said about this passage really helpful. He said that we need to follow the 50-20 principle. This comes from Genesis 50-20, which says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now you might remember, this comes from what Joseph said to his brothers who had sold him into slavery. So, Swindoll says, we don't need 20-20 vision, we need 50-20 vision. We need to be able to see beyond our present situations that we are in, the things we face, and even those who have wronged us, to what God is doing behind the scenes. This reminded me of 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 through 18. It says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Wouldn't this have been such an important message for those during James' day who were facing severe persecution and trials? And I think it's a great message for us today as well. And it once again encourages us to evaluate how do we use our tongues. Are we complainers? Do we perhaps sometimes think we know better than others or than God? Are we building up God's kingdom with our words? I think we all might need to take a step back and think about the times that we tend to grumble or complain And instead, try to focus on waiting expectantly, seeing with that 50-20 vision that God is working behind the scenes. And then we need to trust in that. Now, this has been a lifelong challenge for me. And I'm sure, being only 29, it's going to be a challenge for the rest of my life. (laughs) Um, But I do remember that when I was younger, I realized that I spent a lot of time complaining, and so I decided I wanted to work on it. So I found this website. It's called a complaintfreeworld.org, and if you ask them, they will send you this purple wristband that says a complaint-free world. But it came with a challenge. The challenge was every time you catch yourself complaining, you move it from one arm to the other. The goal is to keep it on the same arm for 21 full days. Because that, we all, yeah, that is how long it takes to develop a habit. Now you laugh, and I'm quite embarrassed to say I don't think I made it an entire day without changing it and finally gave up. And, um, But I just thought this was a really good reminder to maybe try to develop that habit again. And maybe it would be a good practice for us as well. It can be a rubber band or a bracelet or whatever would be a good reminder for you. The point is to notice those times that you complain or grumble and try to develop the habit of being positive. What a positive place we would be if we all took that challenge. 
Now this brings me to the second part of this section on patience, and that is verses 10 through 12. And this is all about patient endurance. And I think this gives us one of the best examples to follow, and that is the prophets. So let's look at this section together. It says, Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. So here, James references the kind of patience that endures under trials. And for that, he gives us the example of the prophets and of Job. In giving these examples, I think James is showing the believers during his day that they are not blazing a new trail here. They are traveling a well-worn path of patience during trials. Now, during the past few months, I've been kind of helping teach a class on the prophets with Wayne Herman, Steve Sharp, and Betsy on Sundays. And so since the prophets are so fresh in my mind right now, this example that James gives here really stuck out to me. I have seen how the prophets have this irresistible call on their lives to prophesy. They could not help but prophesy, even when their message was really unpopular. I think they are the perfect example of people who see with the proper perspective. Now, I just finished teaching on Amos and Micah, who both taught during a time when there was great economic prosperity, growth, and wealth. So their message of destruction and judgment was highly unpopular and honestly seemed pretty ridiculous. However, these prophets saw a dark reality of a people turned away from their God. And they spoke that message in the face of persecution and trials. They persevered under hardship and saw things as they truly were. They saw behind the things happening on earth to the hand of God orchestrating it all. They truly saw with a right perspective and cried out to the people the impending judgment and a call to turn back to their God. Now, right now, I'm preparing to teach on Jeremiah, and it's really hard to think that James did not have Jeremiah in mind as he wrote what he did here in this chapter, because Jeremiah really did endure great hardship and ridicule for sharing God's words. He was betrayed by his own family, beaten and put in stocks, thrown in a cistern, imprisoned by the king, threatened with death, and yet remained faithful. The prophets really saw a heavenly dimension behind our earthly one. Now, the second example James gives here is that of Job, and he really stands in stark contrast to the wealthy described in chapter 4 and beginning of chapter 5 thinking that tomorrow is guaranteed. Job really learned that he had no control over his own life. 
talk about a lesson in humility. And yet he didn't abandon his faith, even when he didn't understand. What an example these are for those facing persecution and trials. These two examples are definitely not people that we could say had an easy life by any stretch of the imagination. However, they are strong examples of patient endurance. And those during James' day facing persecution perhaps could have related to them and maybe said, if they can do it, maybe I can too. And then here, James once again gives us a warning about our tongues, which honestly seemed a little out of place at first. In verse 12, he talks about taking oaths. He seems to be worried here that people would be double-minded in the way they speak, not always being trustworthy. They need to call God into their speaking in order to give validity to what they're saying. They're adding to an oath by invoking a supernatural power. James instead is calling to simplicity of speech, true and honest speaking. And while this seems out of place, I had to think of this in light of those facing persecution. It would have been an especially important message for them who may be tempted to not quite hold to their faith during that persecution. It's interesting to me that one commentator pointed out that the only time in the Bible that we have a reference to someone swearing or cursing is when Peter is insisting that he doesn't know Jesus. That should give us pause for thought. James is calling the believers to be truthful in their speech and patient in their waiting on the Lord, holding tight to their faith, even in the midst of trial. So, once again, I made a chart of, (laughs) I like charts if you can't tell, um, of these last six verses. Um, I just thought that this helps us see what James is doing here. So there are two types of patience, expectant and enduring. And then he gives us an example of that kind of patience, the farmer and then the prophets and Job. And then the danger of the tongue to spoil it all by grumbling and complaining or swearing unnecessary oaths. Now, I like seeing these two examples side by side because I think it's in holding them together that we get a true picture of the kind of patience that James is talking about here. We have the example of the patient farmer, expectantly waiting with excited anticipation for the harvest. And then we have the example of the prophets and Job, who withstood some of the hardest challenges in life and endured while holding tight to their faith in God. These two examples should be held together, excited anticipation and endurance during hardship. That is the patience that James is calling for here. And it is a high calling. And I think this gives us a good picture of how this passage all comes together. You see, in patience, we have a proper perspective because we know that this world is not all there is. And so we wait expectantly and with endurance. So this brings me to a conclusion of our passage. I think James is calling us to live with the right perspective with regards to our money, how we wait on the Lord, and how we endure during trials. 
Our money is not our own. Therefore, I think we need to ask God if we're using it as he would desire us to, so that it does not come to control us. James saw it as a real danger, and since he gives us this glimpse into the pits that we could fall into, let's take heed. Secondly, we need to understand in humility that God's timeline is not our own. Therefore, we need to wait patiently, actively preparing for the coming of the Lord. And that means that our life should reflect the right priorities. And I think this is a perfect time to check our priorities because we know that our time is short and it all belongs to God. Now, a hasty spirit is a form of pride, arrogance that we think we know better than God. So we need to ask God for patience. Now, that might be a frightening thing to ask. There's a quote that I have always remembered ever since I heard it the first time, probably because it bothered me so much, and that is from Evan Almighty, when Morgan Freeman says, if you ask God for patience, do you think he will give you patience or the opportunity to be patient? This makes asking God for patience all the more challenging and frightening. But I think this is a gift of the Spirit that we are called to have. Because as we walk through this life, it will not always be easy, as the examples of Job and the prophets show us. Which is why we need the 50-20 principle. Trusting that God will bring about good, no matter even the most difficult situations. Let's be able to see behind the things of earth to the hand of God. Let's together ask God to give us eyes to see what he is doing, even when it doesn't all make sense. And we need to show our proper perspective with the way that we speak. It should be truthful and honest, as well as not filled with grumbling or complaining, because God is the judge and he is at the door. So with all of this in mind, James has so much practical things in his book that we can apply to our lives. It's slightly overwhelming. Every day here has been convicting. And we've been talking about how to start applying it is first to know who we are, that we are children of God. And I think today this passage also reminds us that we need to start with knowing who God is. We need a true estimate of ourselves and a true estimate of the God we serve. Because it's when we know who he is that he is in control, he's mighty and good. That is when patient endurance just naturally flows from us. And so with all of this in mind, I have a song to close us with that I think is a wonderful reminder of who God is. And that is King of the World by Natalie Grant. Let's listen to this song. Let's pray. Father God, open our eyes to see you, Lord. 
Forgive us for all of the times that we have forgotten that you truly hold it all. Lord, thank you that you are the king of the world who is good, mighty, loving, and in control. As we go through our days and have the tendency to worry about things, Lord, remind us that you have us in the palm of your hands. Help us to see things in perspective of all that you are. Go with us today and help our discussions to be a blessing and our time of fellowship just a wonderful blessing, Lord. And may it all flow out of our overwhelming love for you. In your name I pray, amen.